Good evening, listeners. Welcome to the Kaiju Transmissions podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Bird, um, and not with me is, again, uh, my co-host, Matt. He uh, had to step away from the podcast for uh, for a while, uh, just because he has a lot of family obligations and things going on in his life. Um, uh, so, uh, in his absence, I have a guest host, who uh, has been around here a few times now. Um, you have my friend Lux Edwards with us. Welcome back. It's good to be here. Thank you for having me for the episode. Yeah, and thank you for filling the... Uh, the oh my god, I just dropped my mic. It wouldn't be... The, yeah, you wouldn't be getting the Kaiju Transmissions experience with me without at least one instance of dropping the mic. But thank you for filling Matt's shoes. Um, I know he appreciates it, uh, and I know... I appreciate it, and uh, you know, thanks for helping helping us keep the machine going. Absolutely. Um, and this is a weird one um, because uh, this was an episode that uh, Matt and I were planning to do. Um, I don't know, a few weeks ago, and we all we watched the movies, and then you were going to join us for a different one. You were like, "Hey, I'll watch them and join for." Also, and then like we were ready to record, and then Matt had to drop like last minute. So it's like, um, the the this is kind of like an episode that like has just been going through all kinds of weird changes last minute <laughs> for the last few weeks. So, um, but uh, yeah, it, it, I don't know. It's kind of sad that I I don't have Matt here because uh, as far as um. Toho science fiction goes because we're talking about Warning from Space from Daie and Gorath. This is like the last of the big, um, like old school Toho sci fi movies for us to talk about. Like, we've I don't know what made us wait so long to do this, but I don't know. Matt and I had a list of like basically like why haven't we done this yet episodes, and this is the only one left from like. The classic Honda Subaraya like Toho regime. So it's like I don't know. Maybe it's like in my head I didn't want to do it because it's like I always want to like be able to go back to that in some way. Um, but here we are, um, and uh, so uh, we we paired these two movies for a reason. Which if anyone's seen them, should be obvious. But uh, they are both about a rogue planet or star on a collision course with Earth. Um, and we have seen that plot over and over 
and over throughout the decades. Um, I it's kind of become like its own subgenre. Um, uh, it, I think you can trace it back to the first big story like this, which was uh, uh, When Worlds Collide, which, based on a novel that was published in 1933, later made into um, uh, a movie by the great George Pal, um, who we know Subaraya was a fanatic and acquaintance of George Pal. Um, and yeah, ever since it's just been, there's been so many versions that they're still making them. Uh, I mean, like there's obviously like deep impact Armageddon, but like, um, even just, what was it? There was a, what was it? There was some dumb one a few years ago that Emmerich did. Oh, I wouldn't even count it, but moonfall. Yeah. Yeah. Well, why wouldn't you, I haven't seen it. So maybe that's oh, why I'm I, counting it. I watched it. that trash heap, but yes, I guess we'll count that. Does it not count? It, Cause it's the moon and not, I don't know, something else. <sighs> I don't want to get into it. (laughs) (laughs) That's for a whole different episode. Uh, Yeah, Moonfall. That's right. Moonfall. Yeah, I don't... (laughs) If we're doing a Moonfall episode, (laughs) like, I don't know, there's... That'll be concerning. They'll think we had, like, a stroke or something. But it's it's got a a Godzilla director, so there's your connection. Yep. but yeah, there there's so many movies about this, um, and that's not even counting like your straight to TV or like Asylum or what. I, like it's one of it's become like one of the like big sci-fi movie plots, and it's like every ten years or so there's another one, and it, it's been like that for forever now. In um, the early two thousands, in general, it just became a very like fringe conspiracy theory thing as well with like the whole mm-hmm. uh Nibiru or Planet X conspiracy where there's people constantly predicting that there's this other planet in the solar system that has been hidden from us and is going to eventually destroy the earth. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh I don't know, we 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 love we love the idea of a giant rock like about to obliterate us, I guess. But there's also like, because um, we're we're talking about this as a subgenre of like sci-fi and disaster movies, but it's also become like its own subgenre of like um, drama movies. I mean, the the, uh, the probably the most famous example is uh, Melancholia, the Lars von Trier movie. Um, but there's a bunch of them. There's a Canadian film um, from the 90s called Last Night. It's really good. Um, there's one Abel Ferreira did um, a few years ago with Willem Dafoe. Um, uh, it's called 4 4. It's like a number. Um, I'm it up because it's actually on my watch list. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I other one that I didn't see, but I remember it coming out. Uh, 444, 444, Last Day on Earth is the Abel Ferreira one from 2011. Jeez, I, in my head I'm like, oh yeah, I remember that came out like a few years ago. And it's like, it's forever ago now. Um, there was another one that came out around the same time as that and Melancholia. These are like, it's like, there was like a weird burst of these. I, I didn't see it, but it was more of a dramedy... Um, it had Steve Carell and 
I forget who the female lead was, but it was called Seeking a Friend for the End of the uh, World. I totally forgot about that movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, but but all of these have the conceit that like um, there is something about to crash into the Earth, a meteor, a planet, a star, whatever, and this like more dramatic subgenre of it, like the sci-fi angle of the and the disaster movie angle of that is like way in the back seat, and it's more just asking the question of like, okay, you find out in. A week, two days, three days, whatever, that the whole world is going to be, like, obliterated. Like, what do you do? And it's, like, I don't know. I get why that's an attractive idea for filmmakers. Um, but, yeah, so, like, even within the, the like, rogue star subgenre, there's, like, the rogue star, like, character study subgenre. <laughs> like even recently, um, I, I just even thought about it with Netflix, Don't Look Up. I mean, obviously it's right? a movie yeah, about, yep, it's yep. A movie supposed to be about climate change, but they did it with the giant star hurtling towards the planet. Yeah, and, and Don't Look Up, um, not to get too into the weeds, but like um, we both watched uh, recently uh, When Worlds Collide, and we were having a, a private conversation about... Um, I guess the the dilemma of that film of like who, how, who like what who gets to survive and who who whatever and the um this might surprise you but actually the original ending of Gorath also had a similar thing where it was like only the elite escape the planet and you know Honda was like I that sucks yeah, like, I can't, who, I let's can't change see Honda that agreeing to that at all <laughs> <laughs> um and yeah yeah don't look up is like they take that idea. T- to like the, they satirize that idea like to the nth degree. But yeah, it, it's yeah. Don't look up is probably the most recent um, example. Like there, there's there's just so many of these. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, I don't. I mean, I, there's there's a lot that a writer can play with with that idea. Um, you could go smaller, like, you know, Lars von Trier did, and, okay, what are the personal stakes, and how is someone, like, melancholia is, like, how is someone with chronic depression going to handle that? And then you could go the big, you know, uh, blockbuster sci-fi route and do, you know, what, you know, Armageddon, Deep Impact, and then back in these days, what, um, you know, Subaraya and Honda and, you know, uh, the folks at Daye were doing with these movies. George Pale, of course, with When Worlds Collide. Um, so, yeah, that's like a very uh, sloppy crash course in, um, I guess, apocalyptic planet collides <laughs> uh, movies. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, we're, we're just going to talk about these two chronologically, I think, um, but uh, yeah, Warning from Space um, is uh, 1956. Uh, this is a Daye film, um, one of their first real forays into science fiction. Um, we were talking before the call, like, there's a handful of fringy stuff um, that leans more into horror or fantasy before this. You know, um, there's in 1949, they had an Invisible Man movie. Uh, predating that was a, a horror movie called Rainbow Man, which uh, was Subaraya's first film as uh, an effects guy, at least the first genre film. Um, 
there was a horror movie called Claws of Iron. Um, but this is the first like hard, what I would say, hard sci-fi film that they did on, on like a big, big scale. Um, color film was not um, as common in 1956 in Japan. Um, so this is Japan's first color science fiction movie, um, predating Rodan by nearly a year, which was also 1956. Um, and, uh, uh, yeah, just a very big budget. Um, and, uh, yeah, to, to kind of put you in the time period here um you know the and there's some things in the movie that kind of hint at this like um uh at the time the movie was made japan wasn't a member of the un yet so um when the movie i don't know instead of saying like the un does this the movie calls it like the world council um this is before sputnik um and uh, even the way they use the word satellite isn't necessarily like how we would use it today because it was before Sputnik and that is kind of like what gave every... That's th that kind of set the precedent for what we think, think of as, as a satellite. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, you know, um, you also had stuff like Project Blue Book and, uh, you know, investigations into flying saucers and, and so on and so forth. Um, so, yeah, the, this is predating a lot of what we know about satellites, about outer space, um, and things like that. Um, so that, that, that's just, those are just some things that, like, if you, you sit down and watch this movie, like, keep in mind, like, you know, the there's a lot that we haven't figured out yet. <laughs> That's also going to go for Gorath too, especially because that one gets really into the science. And the more you, the more a movie gets into a science, the more the audience questions the science. So, um, uh, and, uh, this was, um, directed by a guy named Koji Shima. Um, and, uh, written by a guy named Hideo Uguni, who is, um, uh, he became, uh, well, I guess at this point he'd already done quite a few, but uh, he, he was like one of Kurosawa's go-to writers, you know. So he wrote Seven Samurai, Ikiru, Yojimbo, and, I mean, a, a ton of stuff. Um, and then uh, um, the most interesting behind-the-scenes thing uh, is um, the design of the actual aliens, um, like, it, again, this is the early days, so, you know, they're, they're thinking outside of a box that doesn't exist yet, so, okay, what should these aliens look like? And they go to a guy named Taro Okamoto, who is a surrealist artist, think along the lines of, uh, you know, how we would think of someone like Salvador Dali, or even, like, later Picasso, um, and that's like, he was like the Japanese version of that. Um, I know, um, when we did Kaiju Masterclass and, uh, uh, we had Stan Hyde, he was talking about being in person at the, um, uh, uh, Expo 70 in Japan and, um, 
one of Okamoto's most famous uh, things is a like a big like tower he did. Um, that I mean, you can look up uh, Tower of the Sun at Expo seventy, and you'll you'll see it. But um, uh, so they brought him in to design the aliens. They didn't go, oh, who's a guy that you know is known for designing monsters, whatever. They went to this surrealist artist, um, and he has like his own. Like I said, he's like a Japanese dolly. Like he's like famous over there. There's even um, a series of short tokusatsu. Um, I don't know if you want to call it like a web series or whatever on YouTube called a uh, Taro Man, and it's like this superhero that fights all these monsters, like like Ultraman, but the monsters and the hero, like they're all like inspired by. Taro Okamoto's works. Um, they're really cool. Um, our friend Jared is obsessed with it. Um, you ever see any Taro Man Lux? I have not, but I've heard about it from uh, Jared. Yeah, he's like that. Um, uh, but yeah, no, um, I I think it's really cool that it would be like, you know, in Hollywood if they're like, oh, okay, we need to make, um, you know, this you know, day the earth stood still, who's going to design, you know, the alien, like, okay, Salvador Dali, like, and you get some crazy things. So that's where you get, uh, the, the Pyra aliens, which, um, are iconic, (laughs) really. I mean, um, it's one where I, I think a lot of people that are tokusatsu fans, whether they've seen the movie or not, they could probably like, they would probably know the image of those aliens. I certainly knew it many years before I ever watched the movie. Um, so, uh, uh, Warning from Space has a lot of really interesting things going for it because of all this. Um, uh, weirdly enough, the most famous images, at least here in the in the in the U.S., uh, from this movie are the um, publicity stills, which show the giant starfish alien like walking through like a flooded city or something. Um, I don't know the exact origin of those, but um, I yeah, I, I think it's. For whatever reason, they decide to do that to pass it off as like a kaiju movie, and it's very much not. <laughs> Did you ever see those? Yeah, and it's. I think they were only really made for promotional purposes. There's, there was never anything meant yeah, to be that yep. way in the movie. Yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, this just a few years ago got a a, a nice Blu-ray from uh, Arrow. Um, and uh, that's especially welcome because, like, it, here in the States, like, this movie went straight to TV and then it fell into that weird public domain but not really category that, like, the Showa Gamera movies did where it would show up on all these, like, cheapo DVD sets and the transfer is just always looked horrible. Like, um, have you, did you... when? When was the first time you saw it? Did you ever have to watch it like that? Yeah, first time I saw it was on one of those big sets. I have, I think, one that's like 
13 movies in one box of DVDs and it's all like really crappy prints yeah. of all of them. And there's some gamma in there and this is one of them. Uh, and along with, I think Gappa and some others and, yep. um, yeah, all of them look terrible. And this included, I, I watched this for the first time when I went through that set and yeah, I wasn't too impressed by how it looked though. I did like the movie. Yeah. It- it, it's easily the most like depressing looking movie out of those. Like, cause you know, I've had those sets on and off, you know, give me like a hundred movies for five bucks. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I'll do it. Yeah. It, yeah. But yeah, the, that was, uh, I think I had, I think alpha video or whatever put out a DVD and like it, yeah, it looks washed out. It looks, it's, it's like, it barely looks like it's in color. It's like a sepia, like it's incredibly washed out. And like forever, that's how Americans had to watch that movie up until this Blu-ray release. I mean, people like us that are savvy enough to know where to get, you know, fan subs and, you know, rips of the Japanese discs and stuff. We didn't have that problem, but like forever, this movie had to be looked at like that. And then when you watch like, a real like transfer of it. Like um, you notice like how sad that is because this movie's production design is pro and and use of color and all that is like one of the biggest attractions to it. Yeah. It's a completely different experience when you get to see it the way it was intended instead of like you said, washed out colors, grainy lines and transfer. Um, it's an absolutely beautiful movie when it, when none of that is in the way. Like it's very colorful. Everything is shot very crisply. It's it's really great. Yeah. So, um, warning from space. Do you want to do a synopsis? Yeah, I'll try to sum up the best I can. Let's do it. So, uh, yeah, it's pretty straightforward. It's pretty straightforward. <laughs> Most of the time, <laughs> <laughs> it tries to be at least. Um, so for warning from space, it starts off with um, scientists noticing uh, objects in the sky with their telescopes that uh, they don't believe are satellites because they're you know staying still and they're 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 moving around in, in erratic ways. Um, they have photographers trying to capture pictures of them because you know they believe these might be UFOs. Um, eventually, they do start believing they are UFOs as they gather more evidence and more, uh, pictures. Uh, I believe there's one point where they send up unrelated, a rocket is being sent up. So they say, Hey, can we get a picture from this rocket launch? And it's like, okay. So they get a picture from the rocket launch and they, they circulate this, this blurry picture of what's in the sky. It's like, Oh yeah, this is definitely, this is, this is a UFO. This isn't just a satellite, which like you said before, the, the, their definition of satellite would have been, um, more so like, like an orbiting asteroid or something. It wouldn't have been like Sputnik. It wouldn't have been a man-made satellite. So they're like, this doesn't look anything like what we would expect. This, this can't be. Um, so they, it then progresses to, um, a point where we start having scenes of these starfish creature aliens um, appearing in various locations around Japan. And it's very quite at random. There's one where they appear uh, in a lake, uh, another one in another lake outside uh, by like the docks by a ship. Um, there's one where they appear like uh, at a party. Um, 
and then later on there's uh, an encounter where um, one of them shows up at the performance of a famous uh, entertainer uh, named Hikari. Um, and it just like shows up backstage and scares everybody there uh, backstage. Um, after this, they sort of stop appearing and we have a scene where we go actually up to the ship and there's a scene with all of these starfish aliens in the ship talking to each other. And <laughs> there's a bit of comedy to do the scene <laughs> because they're, they're all like lamenting how they can't, seem to communicate with the humans because they keep thinking they're monsters and they won't talk to them. Um, so one of them comes up with the idea, well, what if we turn ourselves into humans? Like what if we looked like humans, maybe then we could talk to them. Uh, cause we, we, we need to save them. It's so important that we save them. Uh, this is introducing what we find out later in the movie, but isn't revealed yet. So we go through this arc now where one of them transforms into uh, a human that looks like Hikari, the, the Japanese entertainer. And everyone's confused that the real Hikari obviously still exists, but there's this other one who just sort of appeared uh, just like laying face down in a lake. And our uh, main cast just happened to find her. Uh, it's worth mentioning the main cast of the movie are all like this group of preeminent scientists in Japan, all in their own major fields. For some reason, all of them are related or know each other. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or like related, like isn't one of them like his son, who's also a scientist is like trying to propose to the other scientist's daughter. Or, exactly. Yes. Yeah. yeah. The, the, <laughs> so all these scientists who just happen to be related somehow and they all, and we're childhood friends as well. <laughs> um, the, the aliens are trying to really talk to these people because these are the, the, the people who they know are the influential ones and they need to actually talk to about the issue that's facing Earth. Um, so the one who looks like Hikari goes and is doing this sort of infiltration mission uh, where she's hanging out with them and with the, uh, the son and the daughter who are sort of, you know, courting. And speaking of courting, there's a scene where they're at a tennis court and... Hikari is having a match with uh, the son of the scientist, and they notice that Hikari is jumping very high in the air and doing things that aren't um, normal for a human to be able to do. Uh, and then soon after that, she's like, uh, she gets stormed by a bunch of fans because they think she's Hikari, uh, but then she like disappears and reappears outside. Um, so they start to suspect that she's not human, and. Very soon after this, Hikari just masks off and uh, is like, okay, you got me. I'm an alien. I'm actually here because there is a problem with nuclear weapons on your planet. We had a problem with nuclear weapons, and we overcame it by inventing a, a clean energy source that uh, is peaceful and it powers our entire planet and uh, it gave us a perfect peace. We want that for your planet as well, but the only way that your planet's going to do it is if you use all of your nuclear weapons to stop this giant star that's heading to your planet, this, this rogue planet that's going to destroy Earth. I know, very roundabout, but <laughs> <laughs> this is how it's got to be. So, all the scientists are now like, oh my gosh, the aliens have told us the world's about to end, but 
we can't even see this planet yet on our telescopes. We just have to, are we supposed to just take their word for it? So we get this little short part of the movie where um, the World Council, like uh, Bird said, because there wasn't really a UN, and the, all the scientists around the world don't believe them. Uh, the World Council denies that their their scientific findings or their talk about aliens is even real, uh, and that everything is fine um, until. They're finally able to catch it on like telescopes and stuff, and they can see it's actually coming for the planet. At this point, it transitions into uh, what you would expect. There's the the dash to figure out a way to destroy it or stop it, um, eventually culminating in launching all of the nuclear weapons, and it doesn't work. Um the preeminent scientist of, I guess, would be the physicist in the movie of the group of scientists was working on something more than nuclear. So he was working on this new element, which would be Earth's new power source, but not the one that the Pyrans came up with, the aliens. The Pyrans did not want him to invent this, so they tried to prevent it. But once they see that the nuclear weapons don't work, they're like, okay, no. We really need this. Uh, unfortunately, by this point, other people had found out about the super weapon that he was inventing. And he has been kidnapped by nefarious uh, third parties trying to get it from him. And he's nowhere to be found and tied up in a room, left for dead while the world is ending and... Planet R, as it becomes known, is coming closer. Eventually, the Pyrans remember they were supposed to be helping us. So, <laughs> so they show up again after there's been much destruction, and everybody seems like they're about to die. And like, oh yeah, they show up. Okay, hold on. We're going to help you go save that guy. So they, they go help save the dude, and he then just... He walks through the, the, the city that's being like destroyed by the immense you know, gravity and heat and everything. And, uh, eventually he gets back to, uh, where all the other scientists are all hiding out at the uh, observatory. And with the help of the aliens, they create this new super weapon and use it to destroy planet R just in time. And hooray, the world is saved. The end. You almost wonder like, cause yeah, the Pyrans are like, hey, we got to tell you about this. But then, yeah, they, they don't really help much. They're just like, you deal with it. <laughs> and, that, and that doesn't work. And then we're like, what now? And then they're like, oh, yeah. And then they just do it for, like, they just end up taking care of it for us. Yeah, they, they talk like, about on the ship, like, oh, we need to tell them. We really need to help them. And then there's, like, that whole second act of her just, like, <laughs> pretending to be human and not telling them anything. And it's like... Doing like backflips, <laughs> yeah, playing tennis like and stuff, playing coy about stuff, and it's like, what is this even for? Can you just tell them? <laughs> <laughs> well, and you would think that they would just be like, we can make the thing to stop the planet, so like, let's just do it. And but they make us do all this other stuff first, <laughs> which I and it's it's to relate it to another movie. It is kind of similar to uh, like. Uh, the setup of uh, the day the Earth stood still, where yeah, they're, yeah. they're trying to intervene, but they're they, they maybe they're trying to like not put their starfishy hands onto it too much. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. The uh, it, it's it's uh, kind of a weird ending because you're just like you could have just done that and. In the first place, then <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> you know, it's, and it's like I said, it, she has a big scene where she outs herself as an alien and tells them all of the 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 lore dump about what is actually going on in the movie, so that the third act can happen, and then promptly yeah. disappears. And <laughs> as far as I remember, they don't even show up again until like the very end. We're like, oh yeah, we're here. <laughs> we, we yeah we yeah probably save, yeah they save they the have to. Yeah, they had they they have a conversation. It's like, because wasn't it like they're they're uh, they opposed that uh, that formula the one scientist had because like it's very similar to the one that like like blew up their like planet or whatever. Yeah, at first there there's a whole scene, and we were laughing about this scene before the call. Um, there is a scene where the the physicist is. Um, just like hanging out in his room, working on physicist stuff. And uh, the Hikari alien materializes behind him and walks over to to look at some of the work on his desk and sees his homework and is like, oh no, and starts tearing it up furiously. And he turns around like, what are you doing with my homework? Stop that. She's like, no, you can't finish this. This this could destroy the world. This is a terrible weapon. Uh, So... Yeah, that's they they establish that they don't want him making this thing, and then obviously it it ends up with him getting kidnapped later. So it is a plot point, but they end up using it anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like if you could do that to help, just why not? But uh, you know, yeah, I guess they have, we have the a- added benefit now of you know no more nuclear weapons, um, which uh, you know. Would be great, obviously. Um, Unless somebody just makes more. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah, it's interesting, too, that... um, I mean, the the movie doesn't make a big point out of it, and, you know, I don't even know how you would read into it on a subtextual level, either. But it's interesting to see a movie come from Japan where they're like nuclear weapons uh if something like this happens like there's a use for them there obviously it doesn't work but um you know it's it's interesting in that it it's a movie that addresses even the existence of nuclear weapons this early Um, you know, whereas, I mean, you have Godzilla and you have like nonfiction movies like the Lucky Dragon number five and and things like that. But in a science fiction setting where, yeah, like 1956, you had Godzilla in 1954, Godzilla raids again, which doesn't really talk about it. And then you have this. Yeah. After Godzilla, Um, and I think this would be the... The second one that is really coming to mind. Yeah, yeah. When you're, yeah, for science fiction, it's like a very early kind of attempt to attempt to have a discussion. I mean, uh, it, like I said, I don't even know what you would say that it 
is even saying about it other than like this horrible thing the world if if the world can come together and use this horrible thing that shouldn't be to save it then maybe there is like some redemption for humanity there or something like that yeah and she makes a point during her big scene where she uh, lord dumps to the scientists that the whole reason they even came to japan instead of all the other countries is because japan is the only country that has experienced the horrors yep. of nuclear warfare yeah. so yep. they knew that japan would be the ones to best understand the history that their their people had with nuclear weapons yeah, it's interesting that it has a little bit less of a, I don't know, like, a, it's weird, because like, cause a year after this, you get the Mysterians, which have aliens that come here, and the horrors of nuclear war have ruined them as a species, it's it's taken away any morality that they ever would have had, and they're just here for their own gain, and they're like these grotesque reflections of human beings that have been through nuclear war and now are like fascists, basically. It brought out the worst in them, whereas Warning from Space, they're like, that that sucked. We need to make sure it never happens again. And then um, it's interesting. Like the Mysterians is a very positive, humanistic movie, but it's uh, it's uh, the the I guess the aliens themselves. It's a more black pilled version when you look at the Mysterians. It's almost like the flip side of this. Is like what if an alien? What what? How does uh you know um you know, another planet's version of humans go wrong. And that's what the Mysterians is. And I, I think that's an interesting contrast because Honda and especially, you know, the Mysterians um, that was written by uh, Takeshi Kimura, who was very, like, when you look at, like, the more downbeat Toho movies and the more downbeat Honda movies, like Matango and stuff, um, like that, like War of the Gargantuas, Frankenstein Conquers the World, those are all written by Kimura, and and we've talked about him on this podcast before. Um, he also wrote um, The Last War, um, which is about nuclear annihilation, and um, just in general, he was a much more like, you know, downtrodden guy. Um, so it makes sense that he would write aliens that are like these grotesque reflections of humanity and you know someone else <laughs> would write you know these like write them as basically like helpers but i it was it's, that that's something that i was thinking about is like the mysterians and the pyrans are like two sides of the same coin and warning from space does address you know first contact in that same sort of way too it's like uh, you know, it could have been very bad. They have the scene that immediately follows the scene with all the starfish talking to each other in the spaceship, um, where all of the the scientists are all just hanging out on like you know uh, a mountain, a trip in the mountains, like out in the, out in nature, hanging out by a lake, 
and they they're like, oh, well, we haven't seen those aliens in a while. I wonder why they all came here. And then one of them says, well, if they wanted to come here to destroy us and invade, they could have done that in a blink of an eye. It's like we would have been destroyed immediately. Yeah. Um, and that didn't happen. So I, what what was that about? <laughs> yeah, it's um, yeah, it's a a very um. I I wonder if this is a movie that you know, you know, someone like Ashiro Honda would have seen and and thought about because this is very much in line with like his values of just like don't be a dick and everyone here like basically we have one life we should all be helping each other um and yeah you you really don't get like uh i mean you brought up the day the earth stood still that's also kind of a a, a companion you could put along with these films um and uh yeah we we don't really have that kind of uh I don't know. We, we we don't have that kind of relationship with you know alien movies very often. Um, I think a recent example is maybe like Arrival. Yeah, Arrival does you know, come to mind. Great movie. Yeah, that yeah that's probably like the closest I can think of. But yeah, usually they're here to like kill us or experiment or or Actually, whatever. Arrival's very um, close to this when you think about it. Yeah. Hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. Arrival is almost like, you know, uh, I don't know. You, you could watch those back to back and like, that would be an interesting double feature to run. I think is arrival and warning from space. Um, yeah, the, uh, the, 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 if we have to get into like, um, stuff that doesn't quite work like all the care like you said earlier all the characters are scientists and they're all related and like it does get very like weird trying to like keep track of like okay that's that that one's this one's daughter oh wait no it's that one's daughter all right that one is engaged to that one no 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 like <laughs> yeah this one's his cousin and that's my brother that one's just my childhood friend Here's my son, and that's my daughter. They like each other. Here's my other. <laughs> it's it gets very confusing, but um, the way they all interact with each other is very. Um, I mean, just it comes off very normal. It's not very. It's not yeah. weird. It's just no. the 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 setup of it is very weird. Yeah, and there's so many of them too. That's that's the other thing. Is this? It doesn't really. It's weird because it doesn't quite have like a primary like main character. It's also not quite an ensemble piece. It just kind of like bounces around. Yeah, because it's it is an ensemble cast, but it doesn't really. It, it doesn't, doesn't. Yeah, focus it doesn't on the ensemble. <laughs> they're, yeah, they're yeah, it, sort of part of the the milieu of the art that's being presented to us, I guess. Yeah, you and you would think like with so many characters, like there, you could probably combine all these characters into like four people. <laughs> you know, I mean, um, and ultimately, I think, like I said, there's there's a few scenes that really stick out and are the ones that are the most memorable for people, and um, one of them is definitely where we see all of the starfish aliens in the ship. Um, 
since it's it's different from anything else you see in the movie. Uh, they're all in the, the this big room where it's all just like very monochromatic um, with some sort of surrealist shapes and stuff going on. It feels very much like fitting with their design, like maybe Taro Okamoto had something yeah, to do with Yeah, that's some of my favorite there. stuff, yeah. Um, that whole scene is kind of played for comedy, which kind of, it, it, it brings it a little off kilter with the movie. <laughs> um, but it works. And I, I find it endearing and it makes you it's it's where the audience realizes, hey, they're not supposed to be scary aliens. These these are actually nice starfish aliens. They're they're yeah, just yeah. very confused about humans. And they, they look um I like like I love the silly, goofy look of them, and that's something you only get A in Japanese science fiction and B with a crazy surrealist designer. Um, and yeah, the suits themselves almost look like someone like in pajamas, like holding their arms out. <laughs> it's so um, wacky looking and I, I feel like they really embraced it. And that's why they have this scene be more comical, I think. Yeah. And it, it works. I, I, I really love this scene. It's, it's all just them, just the, the lights in their eyes flashing, uh, with them to like speaking their own language, and then there's text on the screen so that yeah. we can read what they're saying. Um, and and they're they're iconic. Like in Japan, you know, they're you know a classic sci-fi creature. You know, here they're iconic to you know kaiju and tokusatsu nerds. But like in Japan, it's like yeah, this is like like people know the the image of of the pirate aliens, and that's because of the insane they're just insane (laughs) i think now if you showed something like this to general audiences in the west it's they would more associate it with what we saw from like dc um when they created or not dc uh marvel when they created starro or no that is dc well no no yeah that's dc DC. yeah starro yeah and um yeah and i i mean i don't know i i saw uh you know People saying like, "Oh, the, you know, Starro looks like the." I, there was even when the Suicide Squad came out in Japan. There was um, uh, uh, during the press cycle or whatever, they had uh, Shinji Higuchi and James Gunn actually interview each other um, on like a YouTube thing. And like, yeah, there's a part where Higuchi reaches behind his shelf and takes out like a little figure of the pirate, and James Gunn is like, <laughs> like, you know, he's like, I. I was just going off the comic, but that's great. You know, <laughs> I've never seen that before. What is that? Yeah, yeah, um, and it, yeah, it's 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 a charming interview seeing those two guys. But um, Starro's awesome, by the way. I don't think we ever gave that movie uh, any props on this show, but I, I legitimately the Starro sequence in the Suicide Squad. I think it's like legitimately one of the best giant monster attack scenes that. We've had here like from like a Hollywood. Movie. That's actually a hard agree for me as well. If we're going to talk about um, kaiju scenes in Hollywood movies, I would put that one way up near the top. Yeah, like it. It yeah no, they definitely got like everything from like how he moves, even feels more like man in suit than some of the stuff we see. To like you know just. I, I don't know. It's a great. That's a, I mean, that I like that movie a lot. But yeah, the Starro. Starro. Yeah, and, awesome. if, and if Suicide Squad isn't your thing, just 
find the whole like last 20 minutes of the movie and watch it on whatever YouTube or something. It's worth watching. It's really awesome. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we, <laughs> we were also talking offline, um, about this and like, uh, it's a fun thing to think about, but I got to do, uh, a little of Mythbusters here. So I for I for whatever reason the Wikipedia article for Warning from Space says Stanley Kubrick is a fan of this movie. It's like okay, Stanley Kubrick crazy a crazy human being but arguably like one of the best directors that's ever lived. I mean, you know, if I made a list of my favorite movies, there would be like a bunch of Kubrick stuff on there. I'm going to the sources for it and it looks like this originally came from a biography of Kubrick written by John yep. Baxter. Yeah, and um, I uh, uh, on the first of all in the Arrow commentary, that's when it's first brought up. Like, yeah, a lot of people say this was an inspiration for Kubrick, blah blah blah. And the commentary is like, that's wrong. <laughs> and then so I'm like, okay, why is it wrong? And then, yep, that's exactly where uh, that goes. And then I even I went onto Google Books and I found the actual page that's the citation. And that page is really just kind of like it's talking about Kubrick's um, interest in science fiction. And then there's like a couple pages after that that give like a brief summary of science fiction of, you know, the 40s, 50s, you know, the the era he would have like grown up in. And it brings up Japanese science fiction and it brings up, I mean, it brings up not just warnings from space, but Godzilla and stuff. And it, it brings it up more just like to paint the picture of these are the sci-fi movies that people were watching at the time. This is what was popular. At and the it time. does it in the annoying way where it's derogatory and it's like, Oh, uh, these are all just like clumsy model sequences. Uh, they, they were just, they were well filmed, but the dialogue was terrible and they wasn't like, you, know, you know, these aren't great movies. It just had some cool sequences in them. Yeah, and then for whatever reason, it gets hung on warning from space a little long. There might even be like a part where it's like, for example, warning from space. This is what critics said about it. Like, but it, it, it overall, it's like the author was just giving a kind of really brief. Here are the science fiction movies that were popular at the time. Nowhere in there does it say Kubrick watched these films, liked these films. He might have. I mean, if he did, cool. I mean, I, we know that Tokusatsu inspired a lot of guys from that generation. You know, your Spielbergs, your your George Lucases, and and stuff like that. But uh, yeah, there's no legitimate like Stanley Kubrick said he loves Warning from Space. Like that didn't happen. Uh, as far as we know, he may have seen the movie. He may not have seen the movie. It's it, that it was only brought up just in kind of a really quick like crash course in 50s sci-fi that this author was trying to do. I don't know how it blew up to the point where it's like a common thing people talk about with this movie because it, it is. I've I've seen it repeated a billion times. If if I had known at the time cuz I didn't watch the commentary for this movie until I was getting ready to do the podcast. So if I'd known at the time, I would have put it in like the Kaiju Mythbusters thing that we did at G-Fest last year because I see it so much, but um yeah, I mean, I don't know. If he if he if he saw the movie and liked it, cool. If he never saw it, then <laughs> whatever, but <laughs> we can't say one way or the other. It's it's uh it's really strange, you know, it, it uh 
when you get into anything that has like a very um, niche audience, um, and it happens a lot with tokusatsu fans, anime fans, um, you know, Godzilla fans, it's like, I don't know, people tend to overstate the importance of things sometimes. Like, and sometimes, and it's like you don't need to. Like, there's so many great directors and writers and and things that have been super open about, you know, how these movies inspire. You had Brad Pitt say, I wanted to be an actor because of War of the Gargantuas. Like, we're beyond the point that we need to, like, overblow the importance of any any of these Japanese films. And, it, yeah, there's always a tendency to, to do that for whatever reason. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. Hate to bum out the four people that love both Kubrick and Warning from Space, but not happening. Um, so anyway, this movie has some really cool special effects in it. Oh yeah, yeah. And and I mean, we we we've said the the use of color and uh special effects, how the special effects use color and, you know, um a lot of really good matte shots, um, you know, matte paintings and stuff. Um, I think just, you know, for whatever reason, Daye probably didn't take the best care of the elements for this movie because the Blu-ray, it looks good, but you still wish it looked a little better, but it's still way better than <clears throat> that crappy, you know, TV rip that we were watching for decades. But the miniatures also, like there's some, there's some sequences with miniatures and stuff that are like easily on par with the stuff Subaraya was doing, you know, across the street at Toho. Absolutely. And um, there's one sequence in particular, the uh, transformation sequence, where the starfish turns into uh, the human Hikari. It's like a reverse sequence of Lon Chaney turning into the Wolfman. Y- yeah. It's, it's, it's very <laughs> cool, the way it's shot. Yeah. I really love that sequence. Yeah, no, they, uh, uh, the movie is a visual feast. Uh, like, I mean... As a movie, it uh, it lacks focus, like kind of we talked about. We don't really have... This seems like an easy story to build around like some central characters, and we don't really do that. Like We just have a bunch of them that we just kind of bounce around, so it's a little wonky in the structure of it and everything, but it makes up for a lot of that just in what it does on camera. Um. And uh, like I said, I mean, it, it's it's if you're listening to this and you've only seen that crappy, beat up, sepia toned, you know, piss filter version, <laughs> <laughs> you Absolute know, um, you know, even if you watched it years ago and was like, eh, I'm not really into it, like it it deserves a second shot just to be watched on like where it's you can see the production design in full effect. Um, uh, Especially because like, the colors are so important to all of the effect shots. Like yep. the, 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 the way the blue, the, the blue lights are handled when they're like first showing the starfish aliens and that the lighting is used to make them feel otherworldly is so cool. And you get none of that in the washed out yellow piss no. version. 
Uh, yeah, and like, yeah, that that's still the version like that pops up all the time. So yeah, I mean, if you're gonna stream it or whatever, like, make sure like it's not that crappy version. Like, really, like I said, even if you've seen the movie before, like, if that's all you've seen, then like track this down i i remember before the arrow version i i found like i downloaded a rip of like the japanese disc or something and um i was like yeah this looks like <laughs> a completely different movie like i can't it, like the the gap in quality between that beat up version and how it should look is like astounding it's yeah it, it it's uncommon like, we cannot overstate it. it. We keep talking about it. We cannot overstate how how different this looks when you see it closer to the way it wasn't meant to look. Yeah. Yep. So yeah, even if you've seen it or have one of those crappy DVDs, like tracking down a like the the Arrow disc or you know renting it for a couple bucks or whatever, like is definitely worth doing. I think. Um, you know, um, but, uh, yeah, that's, I don't know. I, I, that, I think, I think we've covered most of, you know, what's worth really talking about here. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, how many, um, lazy, forgetful starfish aliens (laughs) (laughs) do you (laughs) give warning from space? Uh, well, we talked about it, and, and I'll just reiterate. I think the the whole film is shot beautifully. I love the colors. I love how everything is framed. It's very interesting to look at throughout. Um, the story is engaging, and the aliens are fun. The third act gets a little dicey, um, but ultimately the ending with all of the special effects is is pretty neat. So, uh, wrapping everything up with a bow. Um, it it doesn't really hit everything perfectly, but I'll still give it, uh, let's say, three famous entertainers masquerading as starfish <laughs> out of five. Um, and yeah, the uh, the 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 pirates themselves, like, uh, um. I know, like, I don't know, like, books about Gamera always, like, kind of have them, like, you know, I don't know, like a monster encyclopedia or whatever. For whatever, They always have them in there, too. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. In a better world, maybe we would have got, like, Daye's version of, like, a Destroy All Monsters where, you know, they're trying to help, you know, Gamera and Daimajin fight, you know, I don't know, some dumb thing. <laughs> um, but... Uh, I love those goofy starfish things. Um, yeah, as a movie, um, it's a little bit, uh, especially, I mean, that's the thing is like some movies age well, uh, even when they are like, you know, okay, this is ridiculous by today's standards. This one I, I think is a little bit, you know, you have to keep in mind how early this was made, how little we understood about stuff like space and satellites and stuff um uh but as a movie it's okay um that being said i love the way it looks so i mean i i mean you know i i wish it was a little more engaging and focused 
on a story level and on a script level. Um, but it looks great. The aliens are super cool. Um, and it has a lot of charm to it. Um, but it's not something that's, you know, ever probably going to be in like my regular rotation. Um, so I'm going to give it, you know, a three, uh, you know, a good average three, you know, and not in a bad way. It's just a, like, you know, Hey, if, uh, if you're interested in these types of movies and this wasn't, is this is one you haven't checked out yet? Like you, you'll probably like it. Um, so that is warning from space. Um, so now we're going to go to Toho's 1962 um, Gorath, um, directed by Ishiro Honda, written by Takeshi Kimura, who I mentioned earlier. Um, and this is a much less uh, cynical, um, has a little less cynicism to it than some of his other things. Um, uh, special effects by... Eiji Tsuburaya. Um, so you have your classic recipe Toho uh, behind the camera. In front of the camera, you have uh, Ryo Akebi, um, Yuri Shirakawa, Shirakawa, and then um, you know very recognizable people: Akira Kubo, Kumi Mizuno, Kenji Sahara, Jun Tazaki, um, Takashi Shimura. Um, the list uh, just keeps going. Akihiko, <laughs> Harada, yeah, like uh, a very brief appearance by uh, Hideo Amamoto. Um, I mean, uh, who's who of familiar faces? Um, uh, and uh, I mentioned uh, Takeshi Kimura wrote it. Um, however, that's not really how it um, originated. Um, Jojiro Okami uh, wrote the the story. Uh, um, outline um and uh he'd also written um you know the story he has story credits for the mysterians um and uh i think dogura um and i mentioned earlier like yeah in the original story it was it was it was it was different you know um i mentioned you know it ended with you know earth being destroyed and like the elite are the ones that, that that leave the planet at the end. Um, and, you know, it's not hard to see why Honda and Kimura would be like, hey, yeah, we're, we're going to, when we write the actual screenplay, we're going to make that different. Um, now, uh, the just to give you a little bit of um, perspective, um, because this is 1962, Warning from Space is 1956, um, so uh, this is a little bit later, but we still don't have a lot of understanding about space, space travel, and so on and so forth. Um, it was released less than a year after uh, the Soviets sent the first man into space. Um, later that year, um, that's when Kennedy came out and said, uh, you know, we will put a man on the moon before 1970. Um, uh, you know, America sends a probe that reaches Venus. Um, in 1955, that's when Japanese uh, scientists were experimenting with things, you know, with rockets. Um, National Space Activities Council was created in 1960 for, you know, the, the purpose of peaceful space exploration. Um, 
and uh, so we're still we're we're a little more advanced than we are in 1956, but we're still we still have a fairly primitive understanding of a lot of this stuff. Um, and uh, one thing about Honda is, you know, he he obviously knew he was making um, uh, broad appeal, you know, uh, broad, you know genre of films you know he he knew he wasn't making documentaries but he he always tried to find a way to make things plausible and he was a big science nerd um and so uh you know even even when you watch something goofy like monster zero or something like you know you'll get details of like oh this is how we thought someone would move on the moon because of this reason or that reason and so he always did his homework is what i'm trying to say um and being a science geek, you know, he really liked to go the extra mile with his science fiction films. Gorath, uh, for better or worse, depending on who you talk to, uh, really gets into that. Um, but yeah, uh, Honda and Kimura spent a week at uh, Tokyo University um, with an astrophysics pr- uh, professor named Takeo Hada- Hadanaka. Um, and they worked together to make sure the science was, like I said, plausible, even if not necessarily possible. Um, so, uh, that's why it's important to bring that up with Gorath because now in 2023, we watch a movie where the earth is being propelled out of the (laughs) orbit (laughs) with rockets. And it's like, that is some goofy stuff. I mean, not necessarily Um, there is, you know, the three body problem, like franchise, but we won't talk about that because the writer is trash. (laughs) <laughs> what are you talking about? Uh, with the uh, it was adapted into uh, the Wandering Earth. Um, oh, okay. That okay. Yeah, and I, I remember the Wandering Earth being a thing that exists, but okay. Yeah, All it's right. a, a, a so that's huge, what successful franchise uh, of books and okay. the films. But um, yeah, again, we're not going to talk about those. Okay, the interesting. Trash. Um. <laughs> um but yeah, I, I remember even when I was younger watching this and being like, it's dumb, you know. Um, but no, they, they really did their own. There's a scene where uh, Ryo Ikebe is like standing in front of a chalkboard and explaining this stuff to like the UN or a bunch of scientists. I don't remember quite, but um, and like this huge chalkboard is just full of like mathematical equations and formulas and all this stuff to explain what he's talking about. Those are all real. That like that's what I'm trying to say. Like some of these ideas are silly, but in 1962 they seemed rather plausible, and they're those are all that's all real stuff on that chalkboard. They didn't just get an art designer to come scribble a bunch of crap on it. Those are actual scientific equations that you know they they learned about and you know made sure there was like they checked out. You know that that's why these guys were spent a week. With astrophysicists, and if you're um, listening to this, you've watched other Honda movies. You know his general take on what he envisions the future of humanity to look like. Yes, and how advanced we've become with science and space exploration and stuff. It's all very fitting with what Honda would want to put to film. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. And he has a very like Roddenberry esque. You know, when he's making a movie, he he wants to show the best of humanity. 
even if he knows it's not really true, that's what he felt responsible to portray. Um, and, uh, uh, and yeah, it's like that and science are like the things he like geeked out over. Um, so, uh, uh, Gorath is, um, uh, about a rogue star called Gorath, um, and it's on a collision course with Earth. Um, it, it, the the movie starts with um, uh, uh, Jun Tazaki and you know his his crew of space explorers, basically, who encounter this thing. And um, you know they 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 send their last reports to Earth. That's like, hey, this is happening, and uh, this sucks, and we're gonna die. But like, you guys should do something about this. <laughs> um, um, and, uh, uh, the, he's, he's like, collect as much data as possible. He's like, we're going to die. Deal with it. Like get as much data and readings as you can and let's get it to earth. Cause that's all we can do. Um, and then, uh, uh, back down on earth, uh, we are in the future year of 1979 on new year's Eve. Uh, so we are going into 1980 um, and that is where uh, we meet um, our core group of characters. Um, uh, you have uh, uh, Ryo Akebi as Dr. Tazawa, who's an astrophysicist. Um, and, uh, you know, he has his science friends uh, like Takashi Shimura. Um, uh, and uh, you have uh, it's Shimura's daughter that's like the. Um, his like assistant or whatever, right? Yeah, yeah. And then um, you have Kumi Mizuno, uh, who is um, she's Jun Tazaki's uh character that dies. It's, that's his daughter. And uh, Akira Kubo is an astronaut who uh is like uh obsessed with her and is just a <laughs> the worst. Um, yeah, somehow the whole cast <laughs> knows each other in this movie as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I mean, most of the movie is, okay, what is Gorath doing now and how do we deal with it on Earth? And, um, you know, Gorath is like, it's almost, it's almost like a planet version of the blob where it just like absorbs whatever it, like, it has this gravitational pull that's like thousands of, 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 it has like thousands times the mass of Earth, and it it like it will eat up it'll like eat up other stars and get bigger and bigger and bigger and you know that its gravitational pull gets bigger and it's like basically anytime it like absorbs something like something gets worse. Um, and uh yeah i mean uh, mo- it's going to sound boring depending and depending on who you are it might be but like most of the movie is like okay uh we we need to figure out how to adapt to some like you know the main plan as i mentioned earlier is they end up coming up with this idea to build gigantic rockets to push earth out of the way of gorath and um yeah, a lot of it is like okay, like you know, the ceil- the ceiling collapsed. We need like 
another week. You know, we don't have it. Like, you know, it's stuff like that. It's like how do how do how do these guys deal with the the increasing amount of pressure when a giant awful nightmare planet is approaching the earth and you are in a race against time. Um that's basically the setup of Gorath. Um uh and somewhere in there a giant there's a giant walrus. It happens. <laughs> and uh you, I, we we will uh devote a whole segment to um our friend Magma or Maguma. I don't know. It was always Magma when I was growing up and now suddenly people are spelling it like Maguma. I don't know. Um but yeah, uh he he'll have his own segment here. Um but yeah, I mean enough of my blabbing. Let's talk about the movie. Um uh what is your if there is any, what is your history with this movie? This was like we mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, uh, this being sort of like Kaiju Transmission's final foray into these classic Toho sci-fi movies, this is one of the last ones that I had not seen until I okay. watched it for this episode. Um, the other two that are still left for me would be The Human Vapor and Half Human. Oh. Uh, Half Human I'm is... I'm not planning on watching that one ever. <laughs> I mean, it's. Uh, I mean, uh, I mean, I. You. I. I think. I think that's one that you were listening to the episode and you were like talking to me. So I know you've listened to our episode about it. it and it's one of those things where like even the like more icky, uncomfortable stuff is like whatever. But like as a movie, it's really honestly like it's really not that great. Like yeah, I have no plans. It's down. To it's, watch that movie. Yeah, it's da- it's down there with like Varan. But I'll get to the human vapor it, eventually. I do want to yeah. see that. Human vapor is excellent. Like um and human vapor, this movie Gorath and um the last war are three that like in the post VHS age just kind of like never made the jump. Uh, and it it's wrapped up in right stuff. A company called Brenko has or owned the American rights to those, and like it's just been like I don't know that anyone can even figure out what the deal is with those, but um, that that's why it's been like a more of a pain in the ass to see these here, exactly. And um, that's why I hadn't seen it yet, because it just growing up, I watched a lot of a lot of these movies on VHS tapes, and yep. it just it, this was one that was never brought to VHS, uh, so I never yeah, saw it. it it's interesting that this, I have a weird, it's not that weird, but uh, I actually saw this movie very young. Um, and I've talked on the podcast about, you know, stuff that people my age group or older will understand, like before the internet, you really weren't able to be like, okay, I'm just going to type up Godzilla and see the whole franchise and every movie that's even tangentially related like this in like one Wikipedia article. Like my sources were like my, my, my grandpa was a huge movie buff. That's probably where I get a lot of my film nerdiness from. And he always had those books of like, you know, those, the critic guides, you know, Leonard Malton, Roger Ebert, whatever, and so that's how I would discover movies is I would thumb through those and I'd be like, okay, this guy directed this and, oh, here's Terror of Mechagodzilla 
I didn't notice that one until months after I thumbed through all the Godzillas, because it starts with a T. Like, that's what life was like. <laughs> um, in uh, our local video store down the corner, I was there, you know, to do my kid thing of renting movies, and, you know, my grandpa took me once a week. And, um, yeah, we were in the sci-fi section, and it was, there was a movie, and he, he pointed out, he's like, oh, this says it's from the director of Godzilla. It's Gorath. And that sounds kind of like a monstery name, and I'm like, oh, cool, man. Um, and that's when I was really discovering, like, Rodan and Mothra and the, the Mysterians and all this stuff. And I remember I, I was like, I, you know, went home, put it on, and I, I was just like, okay, what... When is like where where is like the monsters? Where's the city destruction? Like what am I what? <laughs> you know, and of course I, I rented that that's the American version that doesn't have the monster. You know, um so as a kid I'm just like, well, I guess I'm glad I got to see it and uh that's it. And then later on, you know, um not that much later on, I discovered so much stuff so quickly. You know, uh, at the time, you know, right after I discovered, like, G-Fan Magazine, this would put me in, like, fifth, fourth, fifth grade. Um, and, you know, there was a guide to Toho movies or whatever, and, you know, it, it brought up Gorath. And I was like, oh, hey, I actually have seen that. And then it mentioned the Japanese version has a giant walrus. It was removed because it's goofy as hell, and... Nobody liked it <laughs> for the American version, and then, and I'm like, oh, so there is a monster in this. And then later on, um, I yeah, once once all these movies, Japanese versions, uh, were on laserdisc in Japan and being you know um, ported over to VHS tapes and fan subbed, that is where I saw the Japanese version of Gorath. It would be like 1996, because there was a dealer, still around, but I don't know, I don't want to get any, anyone in trouble, but uh, my first G-Fest, which was then G-Con, 1996, um, they had a bunch of stuff, and they were all subtitled, and I was like, whoa, this is cool, all these movies I can like watch subtitled now, and I remembered, I was like, the Japanese version of Gorath has the walrus, and I was like, okay, I gotta get that. So that's where I finally... Uh, was able to bask in the glory of Magma the Walrus, Reptile, whatever. Thing. <laughs> Which we'll talk about. And, and yeah, it's one that, um, yeah, just because it's, it's a very dry movie, it's one that was never a favorite. Um, now that I'm way older, it's one that I do, I have found probably since I, I'm 38 now, so probably since I was like in my mid 20s, it's it is one of those movies that every time I watch it, I like it a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more to the point where this last rewatch that I just watched, you know, this is probably the first time I've seen it since like 2010 or something, um, was the most I've ever enjoyed it. So, you know, sometimes movies do grow with you. Uh, this is the, the, and this is one of those. Um, but yeah, like I like I said, my general impressions as a kid, going into being a teenager, was always it's just so boring. It's so dry. It's just guys talking about science and math and blah 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 blah. blah. Now though, I have a 
kind of different perspective of it that you know we'll get into but yeah i mean you're coming at it this fresh completely fresh um as a newcomer yeah yeah so what what were your first impressions as someone that had never seen it before i sort of am very glad i saved this movie for last because after growing up watching all the toho sci-fi movies having a similar experience you know watching stuff on VHS and all the different formats as I was growing up and, and tracking things down um, as I was able to find them in various uh, libraries and, and video stores and whatnot. Um, I grew up loving these movies and watching this was akin for me to like seeing destroy all monsters for the first time as a child. Like, the cast of this movie has everybody. I mean, short of uh, like Akira Takarada not being in it, it has everybody else from like the entire Toho stable that I would want to be in this movie. And so it's just like an all-star cast. The whole thing is a delight to watch because of it, because everyone is really firing on all cylinders in their roles. And uh, yeah, I just, because of the star studded cast, the large scale of the the story and and what was going on throughout and um yeah it just i i had a blast watching this movie i loved it great yeah no that's really good to hear yeah it's one that like i yeah it, it, i wouldn't recommend this to like younger fans like it, i had a similar i i came around to atragon much quicker than gorath but it was similar with atragon like i first saw that movie in like fifth fourth grade like i'm not gonna understand that movie <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah if i saw this when I was a kid i absolutely would not have loved it as much because yeah I, I had seen like when worlds collide when i was a kid and i even then i didn't like when worlds collide that much so i would have probably lumped this in with that and like eh, it's okay <laughs> yeah yeah like you know yeah as a kid i'm like oh i like the cool drill submarine and the big snake thing but like you know i'm not understanding the nuances of uh you know n- patriotism and you know what it's saying about world war ii stragglers and all that it, you know it, like and, and yeah but gorath i've i've I, it's taken me a lot longer to warm up to it but like i'm finally like i'm finally it's finally like really clicking with me now um and uh yeah i mean a lot of it is just it has everything that are really like the hallmarks of a, a Honda film. Um, in fact, this was the movie that he said, well, I mean, there's a caveat to this, and we, we'll get to the walrus in the room in a minute. He, it, it, he always said, if not for that walrus, this would be the, my favorite movie I've ever made. I believe it. Um, and yeah, and and you know, I, talking with other fans and stuff, I I get a lot of really like that one, like what? But it's like if you really understand the things that he was fascinated with, science and compassion and cooperation and tolerance for other humans, it has all of that in a ve- it's a very distilled form, and it's like for better and worse, like um a lot of the science babble can probably be taxing for some people, but to make sense of it being one of his favorites, like, yeah, he, like, he's, like, 
thinking that's the coolest thing ever. A guy standing in front of a chalkboard explaining math and physics like he's like oh this is so cool and you know it's 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 nerdy stuff that like a lot of people are gonna be like this is really dry you know yeah a lot of the movie Um, is just um scientists just talking to each other um and coming together from around the world different people yep and, and trying to solve this problem from different schools of science whereas they originally had borders and they were all separate and just defensive mm-hmm. of their own knowledge in the face of the impending doom that's go wrath. They've all dropped their borders. They've forgotten about any pretenses, anything that had that was separating them as human and said, Hey, we need to just pool everything that we know, all of our resources, all of our knowledge. We're all humans and we're all going to overcome this together. And that is the most Honda thing possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, and they really drive that point home multiple times, even, you know, even with like just small lines. Like there's one scene where, you know, they're saying like, you know, the world, it's basically, I'm paraphrasing, um, but like it's basically like for us to survive this, we need to realize like we're not just one country or one race. And it's like, you know, we have to like, like black people, you know, Chinese, like everyone needs a seat at the yeah, table. Yeah, it, basically. it brings up race. It's yeah. mentioned. So. Yep. Yeah. I, I don't remember the exact line, but it, it says like black people, Chinese people, you know, everyone needs to have a seat at the table. And it's like, I don't know how many Japanese movies in 1962 <laughs> are having that conversation, you know, and that, you know, that's just why it, you know, you just think how ahead of the curve some of this stuff really was, you know, I mean, you brought up with, uh, when worlds collide, you know, um, we, we talked about that a couple times, but you know, we, we, in our conversation that we had offline, you know, we were talking about like, yeah, of course all the survivors, like the, the most of the cat is the cast is white. That's all the people that are, you know, surviving at the end. And, we even had like a conversation about the nuance of that is, and you know, we know that's not what George Pal is saying, but that's just where the world, it's a reflection of where the world, Hollywood is a, often a reflection of where the world is at a time. And I don't think Japanese movies were any different and Hollywood and Japanese movies to this day aren't any different. I'm only saying that to highlight just how you don't get a movie from Japan even now often saying like black people need a seat at the table. Yeah, <laughs> you know, is. you don't you, you, you so it's just put I'm just putting into perspective how Honda's whole mission statement with his films yeah, it's, is still something, yeah, it's still something we don't see a lot and it's still something that we can learn from. Yeah, for 1962 um, to have a statement like that, you know, saying, you know, as just like anybody else, black people deserve a seat at this table um, and have something to offer is that's mind bogglingly progressive for 1962. Because <laughs> Star Trek yeah. hadn't even come out until 1966 on TV. And yeah. that was, yeah, and, and that it, was like, like culture defining moment. Oh, yeah. For, for oh, black yeah. people with Uhura. So it's like, Japan said this four years earlier, 
And it's like, and it's just a Shiro Honda being a Shiro Honda, and I love it. Yeah, it's yeah, no, I yeah, I think he like he really is to me very much in terms of outlook and you know, I guess what he wanted to do with his films is very much like a Japanese Roddenberry to me. It's very like, much so. You know, deep down, did he think the world could be like this? Eh, probably not. But it's like he he felt a responsibility to show it and hope that someone could be like, you know what? Yeah, this is how things should be. Maybe we can enact change. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, stuff like that is what really draws me to to his stuff. And it's like, you know, usually, I mean, you know, you know me, I love movies where everything is miserable and everyone's horrible and it just ends depressing. Oh, I'm, I'm the same way as well. <laughs> you know, but, but stuff, but like the reason Honda is like my favorite is he, he gives me the balance I need to counter that, you know, and, and, you know, it's, it's like, I find his stuff to be very, I don't know, it makes me feel good. It's like, you know, maybe things don't have to be the way they are. And so like, you know, I don't know. I feel like that's probably the biggest compliment anyone could, could give yeah, be, beyond it? nostalgia, I, I agree that the reason I keep coming back to Honda and movies that are made with his influence is because of the humanism and the yeah. optimism. Um, mm-hmm. That is such a feel-good thing that you really need these movies in your life yeah. <laughs> when you're people like us and you enjoy other things that are super dark yeah, and depressing. And, and, and I mean, like... I mean, even to take it out of like sci-fi, like Kurosawa, his like uh, yeah, I love the samurai movies that he did that are more action centric. But like some of my favorite movies of his are just like the you know just dramas that are very humanist and like you know this. If I want the if I want the big miserable thing, like that's what I go to like Scorsese, another favorite. Like that's what I go to him for. It's like if I want feel good i'm gonna go with these guys and um yeah i i think it when you put it in that perspective because most people are oh you know my favorite movie or the best honda movie is godzilla it's mothra it's whatever and so when they hear oh like yeah the thing the the movie one of the movies is most proud of is gorath people are like huh that's i don't get it but like if you understand him and what he was trying to do with movies, it makes sense. Yes. Um, this is the movie that the scientists in Warning from Space should have been watching to make themselves feel better about life. Instead <laughs> yeah. of looking through their telescope, just <laughs> doom scrolling the whole time. Right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, those guys are just like, oh, this sucks. Gosh, we're going to look in our telescope again and watch this thing get closer. <laughs> Well, yeah, uh, yeah, and then yeah, the the, the and then on Earth, like in Gorath, they're like, okay, guys, let's go, let's get to work. Like that ceiling just collapsed. We're losing a week. What are we gonna do? We don't have a week. We got to figure it out. And like, it's like, let's get get shit done. <laughs> you know? yeah, aside from, aside from um, <laughs> our, our our B plot with the with the crew of the ship that goes up to to do the second mission to inspect Gorath. Um, they really don't address or show Gorath that much uh, in the movie. It's just what we're doing on earth 
until yep. it gets here. Yeah. Um, and yeah, the, yeah, the whole B plot is, you know, they send another crew out and, um, uh, I think they're, I think they are actually looking at it to see if a nuclear weapon could destroy yes. it. And then they the end up, express purpose what was, of that mission is they're sent up to determine if it can be destroyed by nuclear weapons like if they shot yeah. all the nuclear weapons on the planet what was the reason they said they couldn't was it be- they said because it was so massive that there is no way that even all the nuclear weapons could stop yeah. it um as, and and that's that's really the the point of why gorath is so horrifying and terrible for them in the movie and, and mm-hmm. it's addressed it, it's from the very beginning of the movie which i guess We'll just we'll start talking about that scene because the very beginning of the movie is like oh my god one of my favorite things in any of Honda's Honda's movies yeah no yeah um, with Jun Tazaki and his crew yeah. basically you know I, they're just doing their job and then they find out like hey we have like ten minutes to live <laughs> pretty much yeah they're on they're, they're, they it, went on this like it's, it's a peacetime mission they're off to explore um, Saturn and survey Saturn or whatever. And while they're on their way there, they get the transmission from Earth that says, hey, we've discovered this rogue planet outside the orbit of Pluto that looks like it's entering our solar system. Can any other ships out there right now, like, take a look at this? And they realize, well, hey, we're the closest ones right now. Should we deviate from mission and and be the ones to go do this? And Jun Tazaki is like, yes, we're going to go do it. We we need to go look at this thing. And um, yeah, it's like we have. Yeah, to. And his second <laughs> command is super excited about it first as well. And he says, like, oh, we're going to be the next Columbus. We're going to be the next Gagarin, uh, Yuri Gagarin, which was you know that's timely. That was recent news for this movie. Um, they're going to be the first to discover a new world, basically. But when they get there, they realize that this object really does have 6,000 times the mass of Earth. And to put that into perspective, um, like I said, that's part of the horror of Gorath. Jupiter is the most massive planet in the solar system. It's uh, around 317 times the mass of Earth. Only 317 and yet Jupiter affects the orbits of everything else in the system. It's like there's the sun primarily because that's obviously that's ginormous. But then Jupiter also has so much gravity because it has so much mass that it affects the orbits of all the other planets. So something that's 6,000 times the mass and gravity that they say <laughs> Then it, that's it's terrifying, and once they get there and they realize this, they can't escape it. There's no way that their ship can possibly get away from it, even as powerful as their ship is. And they all, his crew is terrified when they realize this. But Jin Tazaki puts his foot down to uh, to, to stop that out immediately. He says, "No, these are if we're going to use our final moments for anything, uh, basically we we are going to." Stop, you know, don't, we're going to stop crying about it. We're here, we're on a mission. We came here to survey this the this object, Gorath. We're going to send as much information as we can back to Earth, and we're going to face this with dignity. 
and then everybody just goes about to their job. And then we get this scene where he turns back and he, and it's just him just, he turns back to his desk and just, he's sitting at his desk and you can see the tears start to roll down his face. Mm-hmm. And yep. even just talking about it, it's like, it, it gives me goosebumps. Like th- this is the best Jun Tazaki scene I've ever seen. That scene is also so well edited and I like execute. Like it's that scene is nerve wracking. Like, yes, it's, it's 60 years later and that scene, it's just as powerful today as, as, as anything. It's, it's just amazing. Like that scene, watch, watch just that scene. And like, you'll get like anxiety. Like that scene is like, you really feel the urgency and like the impending doom pretty much. And it's like, you're watching people that just learned they have like 10 minutes to live and they have to deal with it. And not only that, but they can't just sit around and cry about it because they have to, like Jun Tazaki's character says, like they have a responsibility to use that 10 minutes or however much time they have to get as much information as possible and relay it to Earth because it's what could save the world. And like, that's a lot of stakes to put in, into your opening scene. It's quite, you know, it's, it's awesome. What a it would a it would it would movie. work. <laughs> yeah, it would work almost as like a short film. Like that that opening scene is like it's really masterful. Um, and you know that is how you you know if I were to pitch this movie, I would just be like, "This is our opening scene," and go from there because it's it's it really sets the stakes up literally the first scene of the movie and it's like that scene happens and you're like okay this is like this is serious stuff and then the way honda plays off of it after that is really cool too like we as the audience now know just how terrifying this thing is and it's coming but it's we're cutting back to Earth, and we're at a point where they're still they're not really taking it seriously yet. And it's mm-hmm. and these, we have yeah. the politicians, um, you know, talking about whether or not you know this this was even something that the ship should have done. They deviated from mission. It <laughs> yeah. cost a bunch of money. Uh, this yeah, is terrible. Uh, this, and you know, yeah, the 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 politicians are. <laughs> Fairly worthless. And, 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 yeah, and then, it's, and then it's like the next moment. It's like, oh well, you know, the the the, the physicist, the, the the preeminent scientist guy is here to give the report on the mission, and he hands them all the paper. And he's like, I'm going to get down to nitty gritty. We owe them everything. They just told us that we have, you know, two years to save the Earth. <laughs> and, and, yeah, then and then the, 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 the politicians, yeah, the po- yeah, silent. It's like, yeah, yeah they, they, yeah, they, <laughs> yeah, they. <laughs> Yeah, they, they, yeah, they, they change their tune real quick. And then uh, later in the movie, yeah, they're I, just like, well, they, they just admit it. They're like, we're useless here. Just let the scientists yeah. do it. They're the ones that need to save the planet. Yeah, no, yeah, I, I mean, yeah, it's, I don't know, it, like, yeah, in real life, it's like politicians are gonna be like that, and then of course later probably like take all the credit or whatever. Like, like, yeah, I, he, this it has a very realistic expectation. <laughs> Of politicians in a in a in a, in a crisis situation like this, but yeah, we got we got, like, so we got a bit whatever. derailed. We were talking about the B plot, and 
the, the, the whole point for the B plot is they, they have the second team and this is um, the team that has Akira Kubo in it. And I love Akira Kubo. Uh-huh. His character in this, we'll talk about another scene with his character later. That's hilarious. He's the worst. <laughs> yeah. His character is kind of the worst, but I love him in this movie. And um, in the B plot, the whole point is they're going to check out Gorath and, and to survey whether or not they can destroy it rather than, uh, you know, their plan B, which is moving the earth plan a is they want to destroy it. So, uh, they get there and they realize, no, actually this thing, it used to be 6,000 times gravity. Now it's 6,200 because it has so much mass and gravity. It's been collecting all of the other objects along the way. It's just getting bigger and stronger there. We cannot stop this thing, which (laughs) so, um, we get a really cool, actually, cosmic horror, I think, moment with Akira Kubo's character, where he's sent out in what would we would, I guess, if a Star Trek fan would equivalent, uh, like a shuttlecraft from the main ship, and he takes it out closer to Gorath to survey it. And he's caught up in this storm of all of the objects that are being attracted to it. And there's just this psychedelic light show of explosions going on all around him, and he's absolutely terrified by it and it's 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 like something out of um lovecraft um yeah and i think that's really cool because it's it does tie into something else which isn't related but strangely has a similar name (laughs) um in love in lovecraft in in the cthulhu mythos um, there is an entity called Groth, which is, uh, it's an outer god, which is like a, a giant planet-sized entity, which is essentially a living version of Gorath. It's, and it, I, it probably might have been, in, you know, inspired by this, but I just find that interesting. <laughs> <laughs> um. And then, of course, Junji Ito also came later, and he wrote Hellstar Ramina, which is also similar to this setup. Isn't there a a Marvel creature or something called something Gorath? There is a one from the second um, Guardians of the Galaxy movie, would be the most similar to this. Yeah. The Living Planet. No, but like the name Gorath. Ah. Uh, it's not coming um, to mind, but... Um, I'm looking it up, but yeah, the, the, um, Shuma Gorath. Yeah, well, that's a, a Lovecraftian reference type of thing. Yeah. That's almost like a Starro Pyron kind of thing. Yeah, we saw that, that in looking the, uh, at the it. beginning of the second Doctor Strange. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Not as um, cool as the Starro Anyway. Thing. Um, no. Uh, but yeah, the, the, but yeah, that experience gives him a, the Kirakubo amnesia. Yeah, he loses his damn mind. Yeah, <laughs> and then and then yeah, like his, his, the other astronauts, like when they get back to Earth, they kind of just like leave him at Kumi Mizuno's house. <laughs> they're just my, like, uh, that's my second favorite. We don't know what. Kubo <laughs> <in the> <laughs> <movie>. <laughs> yeah, they're just like he doesn't have a memory. We don't know what to do with him. So like, you deal it's with. Like, we this. found your picture in his wallet. You know him, right? And she's like, and it's like <laughs> oh yeah, you know, she, you know, they've known each other since kindergarten. And it's like, and they're just like, cool. Can we leave him with you? And they're like, 
yeah and like and then then they just like turn to him and they're just like all right man you know well good luck with this and they just leave (laughs) (laughs) did they even bother like seeing like where it like does he have parents or relatives or whatever they're just like uh he had your picture so here or something but she had already evacuated so yeah yeah it was something like that i remember that (laughs) um but yeah, before he, even before he loses memory, he's a crazy person. Like, uh, yeah, let's talk about the best scene right before he leaves. Yeah, I'll let you take it because you're all about <laughs> all about that. So scene. they they learn about that they that they're going to go on this mission, and um, while all of the rest of his crew is off like partying on their last night before the mission, instead he decides to go visit Kumi Mizuno's character, who he's known since childhood, and I guess he's always had a crush on. Um, and <laughs> he goes to her apartment and interrupts her. You know, she was just like going about her day. This is unannounced. She was just like taking a bath. So he's just ringing the doorbell and ringing the doorbell. And she's like, okay, I'm coming. And, and then she comes and answers the door and he comes in and she, and they sit down and she, she's like, okay, you know, you're in my apartment now. What do you want? <laughs> <laughs> so and then he whips and he whips out the, the you know this box. He's like, I brought you a present. <laughs> so she's like, Oh, okay. Well, uh, and then she opens it and it's like this really like ornate like uh, like bejeweled like you know watch like necklace thing. I can't really tell what it is. It it, yeah. it doesn't matter. Uh, but but she plays it off like it's something extremely like valuable like he spent a a lot of money on this thing and she's like how did you afford this he's like well you know i'm I'm about to leave the earth and they just paid out like all of my money and i have no use for it because i might not come back so here you go i bought you a gift and because you know because i like you uh and we and they sort of like insinuate like hey if i do come back you know you want to hook up (laughs) And, and she's like um well, you know, this is nice and all, but I can't accept this. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm still grieving. You know, my dead boyfriend. Like, her boyfriend was one of the yeah. was the second in command on that first mission at the beginning of the movie, and his, his picture is like, like on uh, the furniture, like behind her during the scene. Like, it's like framed, like hanging, you know, <laughs> on a shelf. And, and at this point, like Akira Kubo hears that from her, and he's just like. Well, he's dead, though. What does it matter? <laughs> and she's just like, "What?" And then he gets up off the couch and goes over to the, the photo, the framed photograph, and takes it and tosses it out the window. <laughs> it's like, "All right, I'm I'm leaving now." It's like you you really should have grown up, because <laughs> her whole thing is like she's always told him that he never really grew up, and that's why she's never been with him. Uh, and he's like, well, you never grew up. And he throws this picture out the window. <laughs> no, you. <laughs> no, you. <laughs> and it's like, wow, this is the biggest <laughs> dickhead moment in any Honda movie. <laughs> yeah, and then, yeah, he, do- he doesn't really get any, like, kind of, like, <laughs> come up or anything. Like- down on the ground where it's like, there's a whole crowd of people gathered around, <laughs> around the photos of somebody had jumped off the building. <laughs> <laughs> they're all gathered around this little tiny framed photo, like looking at it and looking up like, Oh my God. And they're like this photo just fell. What? <laughs> yeah. And then like at the end, like, I don't know the whole experience of, you know, seeing Gorath up close again. Is it like narrowly avoids the earth? Like 
he like kind of like comes back to normal, but no one's ever like, "Hey, dude, like, like, do you, like, are you like, do you need help?" Like, yeah, this dude is unhinged for the <laughs> whole movie. You got problems. Like, <laughs> the, there, there's like our introduction to him is him and his team are all just totally unhinged, like maniacs. Like they, they're, yeah, they're, they steal they, a helicopter. Yeah, their commanding <laughs> officer comes back and they go to ask him. He's like, "Hey, did our mission get approved?" And uh, <laughs> and he's just like, just nods no. And and, and you know, uh, I think it's is that Akihiko Harada. I think it is. And, he, and yeah, he yeah, it's like gives him the no and walks up the stairs. And then all of them are just like. I've got an idea. And they go, they go steal a helicopter, fly it over to Tokyo <laughs> to like the ministry of space up to the, like the top brass, the guy in charge, the politician. And he's just like, why are you here? And they're all just like, well, <laughs> our commander just showed back up and he was despondent. Cause he said he couldn't, we couldn't go on the mission and he shot himself in the head. <laughs> <laughs> and then Kumi Mizuno like runs up and she's like, y'all are idiots. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's like he didn't shoot himself. Wh- like what what are you doing? And then and then the other guys like he was just mad cuz like we are still like trying to negotiate a budget. Like you're still going. <laughs> and they're like, "Oh." Oh. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yes, this, this this the crew of the second mission is unhinged. Yeah. Yeah, they're all, they're they're crazy. Um so uh yeah, I guess we'll address the walrus in the room. Oh no. Um <laughs> Magma uh which I guess I don't know, Maguma is I don't know what they call him now. I don't know. I always say Magma, so that's what I'm sticking with. Um so uh is a giant walrus that is completely irrelevant to the story. Uh, like less so when you think of other movies that have like monster cameos, like the Mysterians, like Mogera is there to be like the, okay, there's your giant monster moment. But like Mogera also like, there's a story reason for him showing up. You know, it's the Mysterians first play. Um, Manda in Atragon is the God that the people of Mu worship and sacrifice people to. Um, Magma is just there. Like, Magma is... Magma is an Ultraman monster, like an Ultra monster. Yeah, Magma is like... Yeah, yeah, just hanging out, and it, it, I guess it's... Uh, he, he gets upset because his home has been, like, invaded <laughs> to turn into this... to a giant rocket station... And he just, he comes out and he's like, this is, what is this crap? And starts, like, <laughs> destroying stuff. And then, like, they get into their, uh, their VTOL, uh, or, and, and, like, massacre him horribly, and that's it. But, yeah, I, I mean, Honda was, like, like, I don't know, Tanaka and the Toho brass were like, you know, we gotta have a monster, you know, we, we... We gotta have a scene with a monster, you know. We gotta have a monster that we can put on the poster, a monster that we can put in the trailers, and like the first thing in the Japanese trailer for this that you see is magma. It's like this isn't a giant walrus movie, uh, and Honda was just like that stupid, <laughs> like why? 
like that makes no sense. There's a great meme of uh uh Honda with like the crying Wojak face. <laughs> <laughs> and he and, and he's saying like you can't just put a giant walrus into the into any movie. It won't make sense. And then there's Tanaka holding like a big magma like Prop going Tanaka, giant, giant walrus go woo go roar or whatever. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's one of the best. Like this fandom is infamously horrible with memes, <laughs> but like that's one of the best ones that I've seen. But this walrus is, but yeah, he the was central point of the poster for the damn movie. <laughs> yeah, it, it's like we need a monster to market the movie around, even if it's not accurate to what it is. Like it'll get butts in seats, and so. So yeah, the it, he he feels like even less, even more of an afterthought than like other monsters that would just show up in a movie for a scene or whatever. Um, and uh, what's interesting though is the movie itself and the script refer to him as a reptile. Yeah, reptile blood. Um, yeah, and you and you look at this thing and you're just like, that is a not a reptile, my guy. Um, but yeah, the reason for that is as written, it was a reptilian monster and, um, I guess they just didn't change the dialogue cause, they, but, but, you know, Honda was like, okay, well, if we have to do this, like, can we think of something else besides like another dinosaur thing? And then they were like, oh, we're, we're walrus. And it was like, and he was just like, okay, whatever, just, uh, just, as long as I'm getting paid, just and the the seat itself is like kind of nondescript, other than the face. So, like it, it could yeah, it, it looks to the last moment where there's like, yeah, okay, yeah, add like some he, tusks and whiskers on it. Yeah, and um, uh, there there's some dispute over um, uh, who was in the suit, um, uh. Katsumi Tezuka, who played, um, you know, Anguirus and Godzilla Raids Again, and uh, um, uh, <clears throat> he did a lot of, like, you know, if they needed a shot of Godzilla that was taller than Nakajima, for whatever reason, you know, he would step into the suit, things like that, um, in some of the old movies. Um, but, uh, yeah, uh, he is um, primarily... I mean, what everyone can seem to agree on is he was in the suit. Um, now, does that matter? Uh, well, only when you like. It's often showing. Uh, he often shows up on uh, Nakajima's list of credits as well. Um, uh, Teriyushi Nakano, who this was um, an early movie for him as Subarai's assistant, um, said that. Uh, uh, um, Nakajima was in the suit. Now, Nakajima has no recollection of playing this walrus thing. Um, it's not included in his book, and, you know, there's no behind-the-scenes photos of, uh, of this monster in particular. Like, there's a handful, but none of them really show anyone, like, getting in out of the suit. Um, so, I don't know. Uh, I mean, these guys were very old, when they were asked about this stuff, so it's easy not. It's, it would be easy for Nakajima to forget. It would easy for to, it would be easy for Nakano to get his names mixed up. Um, but uh, it it it, uh, it uh, Nakano said that uh, Tezuka wore the suit in all the shots except the ones where um, magma was surrounded by fire. Because I don't know, Nakajima was just better at 
handling stuff like that. So, so that would only be like the very first scene. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, if if he did, if he, if it's like, yeah, we just need you for like a couple shots around this fire as a walrus, like, yeah, you know, in 2012, being asked about that, you, you, it's like it's like asking, you know, you know what you ate for breakfast, you know. Four months ago, like he's probably like I don't remember that yeah, at all. Fifty years before, um, yeah, he wouldn't remember what he did that afternoon. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, but yeah, this is one where uh, the the American distributor was like, "What is this? Like, why is this here? Why is it this like dumb looking <laughs> walrus in this movie?" Um, so Brenco Pictures and doing the American edit took it out, um, and uh, they. Uh, uh, even had a nickname for him as Wally the Walrus. They said, we got to get rid of Wally the Walrus. Test audiences also uh, did not react well. Uh, American test audiences found it weird and pointless. And, and so, it is weird and pointless because um, sh- the, mo- the movie, <laughs> it has no bearing on the movie. And no. it's literally only like five minutes at most of the movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, in the American version, I think there's one shot that like snuck in somewhere of like you know, um, you know, when they're flying over his body or something. But uh, yeah, uh, it, magma does not. Um, it's a very thankless monster <laughs> role, <laughs> and um, and uh, you know, um, uh, that suit got some. Uh, some more use though out of Tsuburaya um in uh, an episode of Ultra Q when they kind of they threw like some whiskers on him uh and and he for to be the monster Todola um and of course uh, we in episode yeah episode 27 and of course we saw um, the VTOL quite a bit in Ultra Oh yeah oh yeah yeah the VTOL yeah it's the same prop from Gorath that yeah they definitely got their mileage out of that one um uh and uh supposedly um in the early stages of destroy all monsters uh you know it's almost like what they did with final wars where like all the monsters were on the table at some point and they were like okay we want this one this one this one this one um but uh um uh magma was included in uh you know some of the very early versions of that in the in the writing process, like the, one of the drafts of the script didn't have you know Anguirus or Gorosaurus, but it had like Magma and Ibira, and so they were playing around with that. Um, and uh, also in in the destroy, script for Destroy All Monsters, um, this this makes a confusing thing even more confusing because in the script for Destroy All Monsters, it's actually Magma that attacks Paris. In the movie, they say it's Baragon, and then the monster that is in Paris is Gorosaurus. <laughs> so, do with that what you will. Um, uh, but yeah, it's uh, it's interesting that um, anyone would even be thinking about this monster now. But sure, I mean, it's not like there's a ton of them. But sure enough, you know, there's been toys made over the years. Um, Richard Pusateri told me that, um, 
around the time this movie came out, there was actually a figure of the robot that Akira Kubo is in, like, he's in, like, a robot suit on New Year's Eve. Do you remember that? Yeah, that that seems great. Apparently there was a toy made of that, like, just as, like, a little promotional thing when this movie came out. Isn't that wild? I would love to have that. (laughs) (laughs) Um... But yeah, the, the 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 I guess the the lasting legacy of magma and Gorath, the planet in in the Godzilla franchise, is a little weird <laughs> that it still like comes up. Um, like uh, uh, magma has come up in um, you know uh, some of the Godzilla video games, um, uh, whatever the big card game was. Uh, <clears throat> a few years ago. Um, some of the, the Sonorama art has, has magma with like other monsters from the Godzilla series. Um, uh, you know, um, different, you know, comic books, things like that. Like usually is like a cameo or like a background thing. Um, like, uh, uh, there's like a magmas in like, a background shot or, or something in, in like an episode of God's of Ban. And, um, yeah, I mean, over the years there's just been different figures because, you know, Toho knows the collector's market and that people will even buy this thing. Yeah. It's a ba- <laughs> it, it really is baffling how long Magma stick, stuck around and is still for some reason relevant in the fandom and with collectors because yeah like every now and then you'll get some maniac on social media like do like who do you want to see in the MonsterVerse poll and it's like magma's there it's like who what what lunatic is <laughs> voting for that because <laughs> and even in this like we said it's it's only like five minutes of the movie you barely see magma in this yeah movie yeah because honda did not want to show magma in this movie um, yeah and murders magma very quickly very violently <laughs> and uh and then he's gone <laughs> so it's so that's why it's just so weird to me that magma is such a um an enduring cultural image for some reason from this movie one one yeah. that here in the west like we said is one that's not traditionally been seen by a lot of people yeah. but for some reason everybody still wants more of magma yeah I'd be interested, I mean, who knows, uh, I'd be interested to know if Honda ever found out that he Magma was taken out of the the American version, and I don't know, I doubt he saw, I mean, I, I feel like, uh, you know, the American version is the American version, and very few of those made it to Japan outside of, like, the most diehard people, like how we would watch, like, a French version of something, but... Um, yeah, so I, I wonder if, if he would maybe even look at the American, outside of that, I think it's very few minor adjustments. So I, I wonder if he were alive today and you were to show him the American cut, if he would even like, maybe even prefer it. Cause he just hated that damn thing. We'll never know. Yep. Yep. Um, Gorath itself <clears throat> is a little more relevant uh, to Godzilla because it has a, a, a big part in, um, final wars. Um, you know, that's the, you know, the aliens from planet X, that's theirs instead of like, you know, we'll give you a drug to cure all disease. Like in monster zero, they're like, yeah, we'll help you. You know, there's this planet approaching earth rapidly and it's called Gorath. Um, and then 
Of course, it turns out that Gorath isn't real, but there is a real Gorath that has Monster X in it, later revealed to be Kaiser Ghidorah. Um, and I don't know, I mean, say what you want about Final Wars, but I, I, I do think one of the cool things about it, whether you like the movie or not, is it did bring out some pretty deep cuts <laughs> of Toho, you know, sci-fi lore, you know, Gorath being like a big one. Um, and then, uh, yeah, Gorath is mentioned in some other things like video games, card games, you know, um, stuff like that. So, uh, yeah, Gorath itself has kind of been incorporated into Godzilla the same way that, you know, the Gotengo or, you know, the Mazer tanks, stuff like that has. Um, and, uh, yeah, I don't know. I wish it would be, I wish they did stuff like that more these days, like, Seems like Toho uh, used to be able to just pull stuff from anything, and now it's just like, well, we got Rodan, we got Mechagodzilla, we got Mothra, we got Ghidorah, what else do you need? More magma, obviously. More magma. Um, uh, speaking, uh, aside from magma, though, because we said even that suit is like below expectations for the monster suits Toho were making at the time. Aside from that, though, honestly, um, this is definitely a movie where they put a lot into the non-walrus special effects. And I, I think this is like some of Subaraya's best work. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I really like all of the scenes. It's just showing them building everything at the South Pole. Um, all of the miniature work there is really awesome. Like, that's some of his best work, I think. Yeah. Yeah, all the stuff with the rockets and um, all the stuff, uh, you know, in the... Is it, is it the South Pole or the North Pole? South Pole. They, they make a, yeah, they yeah. Make a key to, to say a couple times, say, we, we can't do it at the North Pole because that's, you know, it's all water. Got to do yeah. it at the South Pole. Yeah. Um, and Goreth itself is really cool looking. Like... It's like a, it's got that like really, like, ominous glow to it. Like, um, it's just like a big, like gnarly orange chunk. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it just spinning I want, I mean, around I, maliciously. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I wonder. Yeah, like I'm wondering like what it was made out of and and stuff. That prop, there's no way that thing's still around. No. I feel like I would have seen pictures of it or something by now. Because it doesn't but, really seem like there's much to it other than the way that it's, like, shot and, and like, lit. Yeah. <clears throat> Comparatively, if we're going to talk about, like, Planet R from Warning from Space, Planet R is, like, I think more spectacular in its presentation. Because it's, like, I think it's, it's fully animated instead. It seems like it's, like, hand-drawn mm-hmm. animation. It's really cool. Yeah, yeah. Um... But yeah, in this context with Honda and, and since it's Subaraya, uh, Gorath, yes, it's it's just a very cool effect, even though it's presumably just something very simple. Yeah, there is also um, uh, an episode of Ultraman Ace that kind of recycled the plot a little bit with a planet called Goran. And uh, yeah, I, I remember watching that and just being like, gee... 
Wonder where they got that No from. idea. <laughs> Can I copy your homework? Yeah, just change it a little, a little bit, bit to make sure it's not obvious. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I think um, this is a, a movie that doesn't get... It, it's, all, it's I don't know, it's kind of like the underdog of the movies of the 60s. Like... You know, you and I, I, part of that is just because it's such a pain in the ass to see for Americans. Um, like, if you know the if you know the bootleg circuit, and you know maybe the you know the underground torrent sites or whatever that might have it. Like, yeah, you can find it easily. But for the average fan who might not know those avenues or the gray market well, you know, it's just kind of like that never made the jump to DVD here or anything else. And it seems to be wrapped up in rights confusion and stuff. And so that's kind of the only way to find it. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, if you, know, if you know the places to look, you can find it. And if you want help with that, you know, send, you know, go onto Facebook or whatever, email us, send us a, a DM, whatever, and we can point you in the right direction. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's too bad. This, this is one that I always, you know, for a long time, I just considered one of the lesser ones, and like now that I'm old and you know, um, kind of have a better you know grasp of why what it is, you know, it, it's really clicked with me. Um, I like this last viewing is the most I've enjoyed it, and probably the one after that I will probably like it even more and even more and even more. So um, it's always exciting to kind of have a movie like that too. Um, but yeah, like I said earlier, you, we change with movies sometimes. Um, uh, Gorath also appears in, um, the tie-in novel for Godzilla City on the Edge of Battle, in which, uh, Batra was going to stop it from colliding from the Earth, and um, according to Wikizilla, it says it also states Gorath was hypothesized to be a space monster, referencing its role in Final Wars also. Uh, yeah, those novels have some cool stuff in them, uh, and they sound way more exciting than those movies. Okay. <laughs> I don't have much to say about that. <laughs> um, anyway. Uh it's it's also uh interesting to note that at the end of this movie the moon gets destroyed. Yeah, the and everyone's just kind of like, moon huh, just gets that kind of sucked on up. They don't mention that. Yeah. That would have catastrophic effects whether they got the earth back into its normal orbit or not, the moon being destroyed would be catastrophic. Yeah. <laughs> um whoops, yeah. that one. <laughs> yeah, they don't make too much a big deal about that. Uh, it is funny though. At the very end, they're like, "Now that we moved Earth out of the, moved it over there, how are we gonna move it back?" And it's like, you know, I, I, like I don't know. They never made Gorath two electric boogaloo, so <laughs> <laughs> we don't know how the we don't know how they uh, move the Earth back where it's supposed to be, or uh, um, handled, uh, you know, the whole uh, no no more moon issue. But it does remind me of another shot I liked in the movie. The super I did was. Uh, when Gorath is passing by Saturn, and we get this long shot of, oh, of yeah, Saturn, you see of it. Saturn's rings like dissolving yeah, out of their it. orbit and yeah. being dragged across. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that That's up. That's a really cool sequence. 
Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. That is a really cool part that I didn't rem- even remember when I when I watched it again recently for this. Like, yeah, no, that's a that's a cool part too. Goreth is not to be messed with, man. Like, it's like we were saying that that is a like a cosmic nightmare <laughs> situation, and you know, uh, it's it's like it's a creepy looking thing, and yeah, the idea that it just keeps. Like I said, it's like the blob. It just keeps eating things and getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, and yeah, this all happened back in um, 1979, between 1979 through the early 80s when this happened. Y'all remember when? <laughs> y'all remember when Gorath almost destroyed the planet? Yeah, the moon. Yep, it's been weird without a moon. I remember the days when we used to have a, a moon. Yeah. <laughs> um, but no, I yeah, this was a pleasure to revisit. Um, uh, and you know, it, yeah, it, I I don't know that I would recommend it for like kids or like maybe even teenagers. Like I like this is a, a for all of its silly walrus stuff um, from 2023. Looking at the science of it, and you know, just the whole conceit of like moving Earth with gigantic rockets, like some of that stuff maybe isn't. Uh, doesn't hold up to what we know now under scrutiny, but overall, like it's it's a movie that like is more of a like adult movie, and in that in the, like it's about adults. You know, it's it's not really playing to uh, you know we got to have a set piece every twenty minutes, um, and there's a lot under the surface of just you know how it wants to portray humanity and stuff like that, that I don't know, like, I don't know how young of an audience you'd have to be to, like, absorb all that. But, you know, for people our age, I I definitely recommend it. I mean, when I was a kid, the movies among Toho that I really liked all had musical numbers in them. (laughs) (laughs) And this one does, so there is something to be said for that. I I probably would have found the couple times they're singing, they're they're like uh, weird, like we're proud to be, you know, space pilots song. Yeah, yeah, you get like those when I was a kid. Yeah, this has the crazy helicopter theft with uh, them singing some crazy song. Yeah, the B plot. As much as I don't like it as an adult, as a kid, I probably would have liked that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, but no, it's, it's, it's a really like, this is before the poverty row days of, you know, the late sixties and early seventies and all of the seventies really where, you know, Toho were dealing with really low budget productions. And like I said, goofy slap together walrus aside, this looks like an expensive movie and, um, it shows on screen aside from that damn wall. Like everything you say about this movie, you need to like add the caveat of like, except for the damn wall. I love this fucking movie so much, (laughs) except for that goddamn wall. Yeah. Everything about, uh, yeah. Everything has to have like, you have to end every sentence with, except for that stupid wall. Like, you know, but, uh, I don't know. That's, it's a whack. The walrus is a wacky inclusion, but no, the movie is, it's, it's really good. It's always, every time I watch it, it's better than I remember. Um, so how many like last minute um inappropriately inserted walruses do we want to give Gorath? Well, my first experience with it 
being so recent. Um, like I said, it was a total joy. I, I loved being able to see this this amazing cast of, of the Toho stable of actors one more time in this uh, epic Shiro Honda movie. And um, yeah, I think if not for that goddamn walrus, <laughs> um, <laughs> I think this would have probably been, you know, a, a nearly perfect movie. Um, it has everything that I love about Honda in it. Uh, uh, again, just going to retread the the ideals, the idealism, the humanism, the ideas of everybody coming together as humanity, um, being one people, everybody's equal. We're all celebrating our triumphs together and triumphant over crazy odds against us. Um, it's very inspiring stuff. And I absolutely love that when Honda is able to put that to film the B plot with its silliness and <laughs> some of the really, really <laughs> weird scenes that Akira Kubo has um, a, a little bit off putting to be honest. So, uh, <laughs> But there's a, there's a great ironic enjoyment. Yes. There's ironic enjoyment in them, but I can't, say that they are the, the best parts of the movie. So at the end of the day, um, I absolutely adore this movie. Um, I, I actually did watch it another time, a second time before we recorded this. And like bird said, I think every time I watch this, I'm going to end up liking it even more. I, I love this movie as of now, after seeing it only twice though, I'm going to give this a final score of four. God damn fucking walruses out of five <laughs> um i'm not too different from you 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 i have a i have like a different history with this movie where i started out being very cold on it because i watched it when i was little like i watched it when i was like really young and then like over the years it's just been kind of like eh. but like ever since since my 20s onward to now it Every time has been more rewarding. So I, if I was coming in fresh like you, I probably would be a little hotter on it. But like I'm still like I'm warming up to it, and I'm warming warming up to it more each time. And um, but this is still like the most I've ever enjoyed it. Um, and so uh, yeah, I mean I, I think there's some things that make it a little dry when it gets super into sciency stuff and scientists talking and explaining all the science and this and that like if you don't like godzilla singular point that this is going to be something that you might not be able to adjust to as much with good comparison um so it i it, it can be a little dry for me um uh which makes it feel a little slow um, but overall, though, I really enjoyed it this time. And um, right now, I'm at a three and a half. I mean, next time I watch it, you know, a few years down the line, I might be at a four. Um, but yeah, this is definitely an example of an like where I am growing and changing with a movie. Um, and uh, so yeah, no, I I'm glad that I like honestly, like if I didn't have to watch it again for this podcast who knows when the next time i would have watched it is i don't know um like i said it's been probably over 10 years at this point and even last time i was like "Eh, it's better than i remember but still eh." but this time i was like oh wow like i'm i'm like more engaged with this than i ever have been so 
uh, it was really rewarding. Um, and uh, yeah, I dig this movie. And yeah, I mean, uh, if you like more hard sci-fi uh, in your Toho or just in general, it's it's worth going through the the hoops to track down. Um, and you know, hopefully one day, whether it's rights issues getting settled or or what, um, I hope it gets a wide release. Um, here in America, because it doesn't deserve to languish in bootleg and torrent and gray market hell. Um, so, uh, but no, that's Gora. So at the end of the day, uh, Planet Collides movies, who did it better, Daie or Toho? I think it's going to be an apples or oranges argument if we're comparing these two movies, because they, despite sharing this the similar plot, you know, device. They're very different movies, and they're shot very differently. They have very different depictions of humanity. Um, yeah, it's apples to oranges for me. If I had to pick one, though, I'm going to go with Honda every day. <laughs> I'm going to go with Gorat. Yeah, I, yeah. I, no, uh, Warning from Space has like some kookier, crazier, more interesting visuals, and. Um, yeah, certain things that are different, but yeah, at the end of the day, I'm I'm gonna go with Goreth. I don't, and, and I don't know. To me, it's just like unless it's half human or Varan, like you really can't go wrong with that original recipe, Honda Tsuburaya, and then either Kimura or Sekizawa writing. Like it's just like that's the for me anyway. That's the dream. Yep, that's the special sauce. Yep. So yeah, that's Goreth and uh, Warning from Space. Check them out. My God. And uh, yeah, Lux, thanks again for uh, filling uh, Matt's shoes here. Um, Like I said, he appreciates it. I appreciate it. Um, I'm sure listeners will appreciate it because, you know, good conversation. It's it's been an honor. I've been very happy to be here. Thank you so much for asking me to uh, do this episode in Matt's absence. I had a great time doing it with you. And uh, my God, it's full of starfish. Yeah. All right. Let's. uh, Let's go steal a helicopter. Uh... Thank you for listening to the Kaiju Transmissions podcast. Please take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes, Podbean, and Stitcher. Make sure to subscribe for all the latest episodes. You can also check us out on Twitter at KT underscore podcast. You can check us out on Instagram and Facebook at Kaiju Transmissions. And you can email us at kaijutransmissions at gmail.com if you have any questions or comments. And we will see you next time. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.